If you would just be so kind to stand to your feet as we go to his holy, precious, and pure word. Praise God for this wonderful choir, amen, who has definitely set the atmosphere for the reading, listening, and obeying of the word of God. If you could turn to the book of Galatians, chapter 3, and we're going to read verses 26 to chapter 4, verse 7. So glad to have with us our some special guests today. Guest of a, a dear brother in Christ who I will always remember because of the way in which he passed from this life to the next. I'll never forget the words that he said as he was laying on his sickbed to me and he looked at me in the eye as he was battling cancer. And he said, Reverend Jamal, I just want to see the face of Jesus. And that, those words are forever embedded upon my heart and embedded upon my mind. And I thank God for his life. And I thank God for the way that he showed us the way that a Christian passes over from this life to the next. Amen. So to the Bartlett family who's in the first row, we salute you in the name of Jesus. And we thank you for coming out and worshiping with us today. Galatians. Chapter 3, verse 26, and we'll read up to verse 7 in chapter 4. When you get there, say, got it. got it, and if you're not there, say, wait. We will wait for you, amen. Galatians chapter 3. Verse 26, and the precious, pure, and errant, and holy word of God reads, For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female for you all, for you, for, are, for you are all in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. For you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Today we want to tag this text, Adopted by God. Adopted by God. By God. Touch your neighbor and say, neighbor, neighbor. 
If you are a born-again Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, you have been adopted by God into his family. You may be seated in the name of Jesus. Today we want to continue our series from death to glory. And we've talked about basically the way in which God saves us. We've discussed it about how God elects us, about he, how he allows us to hear a general call, and how he regenerates our hearts, how he gives us new hearts, which allow us to respond in faith and through repentance. We also talked about how at that moment God justifies us or he makes us legally right in his sight. And today we want to look at how he adopts us into his family. Father, I pray that through your word that we, Father God, would be encouraged for the sake of your kingdom and for your glory. I pray that no flesh would glory in your sight this morning. That you, Father God, will allow your words to sound loud in our ears. That you will allow it to be implanted into our hearts so that we would not be just hearers of the words, but that we may be doers of the word as well. I pray, Father God, that as I proclaim your gospel and your word, that I would not proclaim it in flesh to be glorified by man or to be praised by man, but to please you, to be faithful to your most precious word. I pray for that heart today who is hanging on by a, a string, who feels like giving up, who feels like they are so far away from you, Father God, that you would allow your word to remind them that your arms are never too short to save and that your ears are never deaf in which they cannot hear. That you are a faithful God who calls us to be a faithful people as a result of your faithful son. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. Amen. I welcome you to listen to the words of, the, of an author, pastor, theologian by the name of Dr. Russell Moore, who also serves as the Dean of Theology at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary here in Louisville, Kentucky. As he talks about how him and his, his wife Mary uh, visited an orphanage that their soon-to-be sons were at. And he says these words, When Mary and I first walked into the orphanage where we were led to the boys the Russian courts had picked out for us to adopt, we almost vomited in reaction to the stench and the squeller of the place. The boys were in cribs, in the dark, lying in their own waste. And later, Dr. Russell Moore would say these words, of all the disturbing aspects of the orphanage in which we found our boys, one stands out above all the others in its horror. It was quiet. 
The place was filled with an eerie silence, quieter than the Library of Congress. Despite the fact that there were cribs full of babies in every room. If you listen intently enough, you could hear the sound of a gentle rocking as babies rocked themselves back to forth in their beds. They didn't cry because no one responded to their cries. So they stopped crying. It's an exact quote from his book, Adopted for Life, which is masterfully written. In John chapter, James chapter 1, verse 27, the word of God says that pure religion is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. I praise God. For men and women throughout the centuries, like Dr. Russell Moore and his wife Marie, who takes James chapter 1, verse 27, seriously, who sees the orphans in orphanages as the responsibility of Christians to adopt them and to bring them into their homes, which should be a loving environment. But you know, as I read those words, it was hard for me to read them without realizing that that's not just a picture of orphans. That is a picture of the state in which we all were in. We all were orphans at one time. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. We all were in a state of hopelessness. In a state in which we could not help or save ourselves because of our sins. It says, We were following the course of this world. This world was our orphanage. Following the prince of the power of the air, Satan was our caretaker. Satan was our father. We were liars because he is the father of lies. The Bible says that we we're carrying out or living out the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath. But praise God for the next verse. It says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together in Christ. He saw us in a dark or called the course of this world. He saw us in a state of helplessness and hopelessness. He walked through the doors and said, you are mine. And we were adopted into his family. To be adopted into the family of God means to be made a child of God by God. And we know that this is done as a result of grace through 
faith. We become sons of God. And that's exactly what Paul is getting at here in the book of Galatians as he is ministering to those who are in Galatia. And they have some issues. And the reason why they have some issues is because they are listening to false teachers. They are listening to Jewish teachers who are telling these Gentiles that faith is not enough to save you. They're pointing back to the law and they're telling these Jew, these, these Gentiles that, that in order to be really saved, that in order to be really a child of God, that in order to be really a king's kid, one must obey the Mosaic law. Despite the apostles' gathering in which we read in Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem council, despite the apostles coming together and saying that this is heretical, that this teaching is false, these Jews were still trying to make these Gentiles into Jewish proselytes. They were checking under their garments, so to speak, with their words to see if these Gentiles had been circumcised and telling these Gentiles that if you have not received the mark of the covenant, the mark of Abraham, then you are not a child of God. And the Apostle Paul is irate. He's upset because the gospel of Jesus Christ is at stake. Justification by faith is at stake. And he is irate throughout this book. In fact, it is the only book of the, the letters, of the 13 letters in which he writes, in which he does not pay a single compliment to the church. And listen to what he tells them. Listen to how he rebukes them. Listen to how he points to our adoption for our edification. And for our holiness, listen to what he tells them in verse 26. He reminds them, for in Christ Jesus, you were, you are all sons of God. He said, all of you are sons of God, Gentiles and Jews. And he tells them how he says, through faith, not through the works of the law. He says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. Now, he says, baptized into Christ. Now, he's not talking about a water baptism. That's not what he's speaking of right here. He's not talking about the moment in which we were baptized, but rather he's talking about exactly what he was talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He's talking about we are submerged. That's what the word baptism means in Greek. Baptizo, to be submerged, to be dipped, to be immersed. He said that we were dipped, we were submerged, we were immersed by the Holy Spirit. We were regenerated, we were given new life as a result of the Spirit of God. That's what he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 4. Just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews and Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink 
of one spirit. Apostle Paul tells these people who are these Christians in Corinth the same thing that he tells the Christians who are in Galatia. We all have something in common. We all are related. We all are brothers and sisters in Christ, not in a metaphorical sense, but in a literal sense. The person that you are sitting next to, if they have confessed faith in Christ, no matter if you have never seen them before, is your real brother and sister. Dr. Moore, in his book, he talks about how one of the hardest questions for him to answer with humility was the question in which people would always ask when they saw him with his boys. They would say, well, we've heard that you've adopted sons. Which sons are really yours? And he would get upset and say, what do you mean which sons are really mine? Each of these children are really mine because I took them and made them a part of my family. And Paul was telling these, these Jewish teachers who were trying to make it hard to be saved, each of us are really gods. We all belong to God. Then he tells them in that same verse, says that we were baptized into Christ and we have put on Christ. This is an interesting, interesting way in which Paul puts it. He says you have put on Christ. And talking to people who would have been Roman citizens, it would have created an a, a imagery for them, a, a picture for them. For in Roman society, when a youth came of age, he was given a, a special garment, a special togan, toga which omitted him to the full rights of the family and the state. And it indicated that he was a grown-up son. So Paul is saying that we all have put on Christ. In other words, he's saying that we need to take off these old clothes of the law. We need to take off these old mindsets. We need to take off this old mosaic vision and we need to put on this vision in which God has ordained, this vision which says that we are all one because we are all in Christ. And that's a beautiful, beautiful message. A message that we, that I, that you, that we have to take into account every day of our lives. Paul is saying we have to get out of this division. We have to get away from, I don't really know you like that. And we have to see in the spiritual realm, we have to see in Christ that we are a part of his body. Look at verse 29. He says, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to the promise. And this is radical what Paul is saying as he is talking to these Gentiles. He's saying that you are a part of Abraham's seed. You are a part of his offspring. Now, we know that Jews hearing this, they probably would have been irate if they're not mature because they prided themselves of, of being a part of Abraham's lineage. And Abraham's offspring. Well, Paul is telling these Jews that really, if you really want to be real about it, you really aren't Jews. 
you really aren't children of God. And, and, and the reason he, was, he would have been pointing to that is because the law says that those who are child of, children of God are those who keep the law. Well, everyone is a lawbreaker. Paul is saying that you all are the offspring of Abraham, not because of you, not because of your ethnicity, not because you were born a Jew. You are a part of the offspring of Abraham because of Christ. Christ is the true Israel of God. Christ is the only one who could perfectly keep the law. And when you put your faith in Christ, his righteousness becomes your righteousness. And you become Abraham's seed. What a beautiful message. What a beautiful, beautiful message that we are in the family of God, not as a result of our works, not as a result of anything other than God's grace and the faith in which he allowed us to have towards Christ. Take some pressure off because I know that I can never impress God. I can please him, but I can't impress him. That God is only impressed by the work of his son, his beloved son, in whom he is well pleased. Now, as we look at adoption, as we look at being children of God, as we look at being in the family of God, there's a couple of things that we really want to keep in mind as we walk this Christian walk. And the first thing that we want to keep in mind is what Paul points to, and that is our identity. He says that you are sons of God, and we're going to talk about why he uses that term sons, because there's a temptation every time we read sons to say and daughters. But here Paul is using a, a specific phrase that really means sons. But he's saying that you all are sons of God. So he's pointing to our identity. He's pointing to who we are. And then he says that there is neither Jew nor Greek. He says because we are children of God, our ethnicity no longer matters. I'm going to say that again. When we become adopted by God, human distinctions lose their significance. When God takes us into, our fa into his family, human distinctions are no longer significant. He doesn't look and say, well, I have more respect for this Jew than I have for this Gentile. Or, I, I love these African Americans more than I do these Caucasians. Or, I just love the worship of, of Asians over the worship of the Hispanic community. No, Paul says there is neither Jew nor Greek. He says we have to get out of seeing the church as an ethnic group and we have to see it for what it is. We all are a part of God's family. And that's the beautiful thing about natural adoption in which I like so much. I really love seeing when a family adopts a person of a different ethnicity. 
And people look and we stare and say, what are they doing? What is that African-American couple doing with a Caucasian child? Or what is that Caucasian couple doing with an African-American child? And I say to myself, they are doing what the gospel tells us that God did. He looks past our ethnicity. And he looks at the heart in which he gives us. And he is satisfied. They say that the most segregated hour of the week is when? Sunday morning at 11 o'clock. As Caucasians gather in one church, African Americans gather in another church, Latinos gather in their church, Russians gather in their church. And we all worship the same God in separate places. And we look at people funny if they come through the door and they're not of our ethnic group. But what we fail to see is the awesomeness of God. That God has a mixed and a blended family. That he loves us all the same and he looks past our color. He looks past our hairdos. He looks past our clothing and he looks at us and says, you are my child. Got to be careful when we're out in the public talking about we're going to share our faith and we only share our faith with those who look like us. Now, God got some family members who speak languages that we've never heard. And one day we will all, wor all worship in the same congregation around the throne of God where there will be a people of every nation, every tongue, and every tribe. And we will join in with the heavenly host and bow before him and say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty who was and is. Paul says we got to look past our ethnicities. And not only do we have to look past our ethnicities, we have to look past our social, economical statuses. He says, listen, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free. Those who were free were looking at the slaves who accepted Christ and they were looking down on them. Looking at them as if God loves them less because they have not yet earned their freedom. God says, I don't look at their ethnicity. I don't look at their social status. When you become a child of God, he accepts you and the ethnic group and the, the social status that you are in. And he doesn't care if you're white collar, blue collar, red or green collar. All he cares is that you love him. Amen. Amen. Says not only does he not care about our ethnic group and our social status, but our identity should not be in our sex. He said male or female. As males in the Jewish culture were most certainly looking down at the females as they worshiped, thinking that they were more superior to God. And that God was more of their father than he was these women father. In fact, 
History tells us that, that they will often stand in synagogues and pray and say, Lord, I thank you that you have not made me to be a woman. Paul is saying in the sight of God, he does not show favoritism to, to a specific sex. Now, while he does not show favoritism to a specific sex, he has given specific roles for sexes. He has made the male the home of the house, the head of the house. I don't know wives emailing me this week talking about, Pastor, you finally said something. He always walking around the house reminding me that he's the head of the home and that's for me and my house. Pastor, you finally preached. Just been waiting on you to say that. God is not saying that there is not roles and a difference of service. He's saying that, they, that we all are equal. That they are not less than us in relationship, men, with Christ. God has ordained men for a specific role and a specific task with specific gifts. And, and men can't do necessarily what, what women can do in that same regard because there's a special anointing on the role of a, of a wife in the house. Paul telling us that we need to find our identity in Christ, in Christ alone. Our identity is not found in our ethnicity, our social economic status, nor is it found in our sex, but it is found in Christ Jesus. When we come to Christ, we have a new identity, and we must put off the old identity. So Paul said to the church at Philippi, Philippians chapter 3, verse 3 through 7, he says, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. He says, put no confidence in the flesh. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, also if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And he begins to brag about his former identity. He says, listen, I was circumcised on an eight day. I was born of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He said, I was a man's man. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. Listen to what he says. But whatever I had. Whatever I gained, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I counted everything as loss because of the surprise, surprising, surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish. Why, Paul? Why would you count your former identity, the thing in which gave you prominence, the thing in which you found comfort in? Why would you count it as rubbish or as dung, Paul? In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. As being children of God, God calls us to count Everything as rubbish. 
that we would find comfort and confidence in other than Jesus Christ. He's saying, have no confidence in your flesh. Have no confidence in your degree. Have no confidence in your fraternity or sorority. Have no confidence in your parents. Have no confidence in your reading skills or your intellectual skills. He says, have no confidence in what you have possessed. Children, have no confidence in your toys. Have no confidence in your homes. Have no confidence in your Jordans. Have no confidence in your title. Count it as loss. Find your confidence in Christ Jesus and being a child of God. Find your confidence in being one of God's children. In other words, he says, don't be prideful about your position, about your possessions, about your own worth. Find your pride in he who died. Brother Maceo, if I was a rapper, that would be my first hit. Find your pride in he who died for you and for me to set us free. We know where our pride lies if it lies outside of our proper identity by what we are offended, by what offends us when someone doesn't notice that we have obtained it. We know that our identity is not in Christ when someone calls us by our first name rather than by doctor, and we get upset. We, we know where our identity lies when we can't have a conversation with someone without boasting on our grandchildren. And we never would take the time to boast in Christ. We know where our identity lies. Uh-oh. By what our tweeter constantly says and constantly boasts about. And our Facebook messages constantly point to. We know where our identity lies by our conscience when we lay our heads on the pillow at night and say, I'm happy always because this is here. Our confidence lies in that which would break us if it cease to exist. Paul points to something else. He says, not only do you want to be mindful of your identity. Even before I go there, I want to talk about this example real quick. What was interesting in, in Dr. Moore's book, he says these words. He says that he went to the Russian courts to change his children's names. His children's names was Maximus and Sergius. And he said he changes their names to Benjamin and Timothy. They were young kids, and, and, and he said that he, he would call them by their new names and that these children would, would not turn around for a long time. They would assume that he was calling someone else. They would only answer to their old name, their old identity. But he said, after a while, 
they started answering to their new identity. He said he would say Benjamin and Timothy, and they would turn around just as if he had said Maximus and Sergius. And he says that it was interesting because that's the way that our walk with Christ is. It's when we first come into Christ, we have to learn our new identity. Yes, we are a new creation. Yes, we are a new people. But it takes time to turn to hear the shepherd's voice. It's a process. It's a process. Our identity must be found in Christ, and we must hear the voice of Christ and learn to turn when the voice of Christ speaks. Next thing Paul points to in this text starts at verse 1. He says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also... When we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive the adoptions of sons. Paul tells this church at Galatia, he says, not only do you have to look at your identity, but the next thing you have to look at is that as God's children, we have to look to him for discipline and for maturity. Paul says, listen, if you guys continue to go along with this religion, you will continue to live as as children. As as children who who are living by elementary principles, an elementary religion. He says that a child, when he is an infant, when he is young, he he is no more capable of running his father's house than a slave. He's walking around, and even though he's in the home in which he's walking around, he doesn't have any authority, he doesn't own anything. He says that's what a futile religion is. That's what having a false sense of the gospel is. It's, it's, it's not coming into a mature state of understanding that you really are not walking in the authority of Christ. And the power of Christ. He says, so put off the elementary religion. Put off this Mosaic law religion, put off this circumcision religion, and pick up the the true religion, which is a mature religion, a religion that tells us truly how to serve Christ. And that's exactly what God is doing in our lives once we come to know Christ. He is teaching us how to worship him, how to become mature. And he does that through discipline, through disciplining us. Now we say, discipline, that's a bad word. Because when we think about discipline, we automatically think about a beating. We think about, I'm going to discipline my child, which means I'm going to beat my child. Oh, did you just hear her? She said, when she get home, she's going to lay down the law. She's going to discipline him. And we think, oh, he's he's got a good spanking coming. But that's not all that discipline is. To to discipline, it, it means simply to train someone to act accordingly. God is disciplining us because he is our father. It means to train someone to act accordingly, and that's not a bad thing. It's not punishment. Difference from punishment and training. We discipline our children every time we turn the TV off and tell them to do their homework. 
We discipline our children every time we bring them to Sunday school. We're training them how to live. A parent disciplines their child when they tell their child to take their hat off at the table and to chew with their mouths closed. Discipline is training a person to, to act accordingly. And that's exactly what God does to us. He, he disciplines us. He trains us to, to live and act accordingly. Now, why does a parent discipline their child? Because if that child does not receive discipline, that child is going to act up, that child is going to be a hot mess, and ultimately that child and the way that they act is going to point back to their parent. That child hears a speech before mama takes them into a grocery store and trains and that parent trains that child how to sit at church so that when the service is going on, that people won't look at that child and then look at the parent and say, they need some home training. And it's the same way with God, with us. God disciplines us. He allows us to come into his family. He tells us to reject the elementary principles or religions that we have learned before we came to know him. And he, tell, and he, he takes us through a training process so that we can represent him well as ambassadors. Least we cut up and act the fool. God doesn't want us embarrassing him. And Christians can embarrass God. Some of our worst hurts, if we tell the truth, come at the hands of other Christians. Proverbs 29, 17 says, Discipline your son and he will give you rest. He will give delight to your heart. When we are not coming under the discipline of God, and when we are cutting up, we are directly impacting and affecting the kingdom of God. We're hurting other people's perception and view of Christ. It was Jesus, the night that he was betrayed, when he was met in that garden by the Roman soldiers. And the Bible says that, that Peter saw them getting ready to take him away, and he took out his sword, and he slashed the soldier's ear. The soldier was missing an ear, and Jesus picked up his ear, and he put it back on his head, and he healed him. Peter, a follower of Jesus Christ, caused harm to someone in which he was supposed to minister to. Now, Jesus had tried to discipline Peter and the rest of the disciples on the, on the mount. When he was teaching them, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, you turn the other and you let them hit you. If someone tells you to go one mile, you go two miles with them. If someone sues you for your cloak, you give them your tunic as well. He was disciplining them. And that's what discipline is. That's how we receive discipline when we hear the word of Jesus. When we hear the word of Jesus and we make up our mind to obey his word. Discipline comes when we value his word. Discipline comes when we see his word as living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Discipline comes when we allow it to, to pierce us and to divide the soul and the spirit, the joints and the marrow and discern the, the attentions and the thoughts of the heart. Discipline comes when we say, not my will, Lord, but your will. 
Not my desires, Lord, but your desire. Discipline comes when we listen to what the Lord is telling us. And the Lord tells us through his word. He tells us through his church. He disciplines us through his people. Are we allowing God to discipline us? Are we picking up the word of God in order that we can be taught by God? Are we coming into fellowship as often as we can to hear people who have labored in a text tell us what the text means and how to apply it to our lives? Are we not just hearing the word? Are we seeking ways in which we can obey God's word? And if not, even though we carry the name of Christ, we will turn people away from Christ. We will hurt immature Christians and, and snap at people unnecessarily and curse people when we should be blessing them. And seek to please people more than God. The part of being a child of God and discipline, it is suffering. The Bible tells us that we must suffer. The call of a child of God is to suffer for the name of Christ. It's not optional. It's mandatory. Being a child of God means that we will suffer. As Thomas Watson said, affliction is the badge of those who have been adopted by Christ. When we suffer for the sake of Christ, when we pick up our cross for the sake of Christ, we come under his discipline. And the Bible tells us that, that Jesus himself submitted himself to the discipline of the Lord. He suffered for the sake of the Lord. Hebrews chapter 5 says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of salvation to all who obey. Jesus, our perfect example, suffered. He came under the, the discipline of God. And if Christ, who is perfect, came under the discipline of God for doing the will of God, we must come under the discipline of God and do the will of God. We ought to not look at other Christians when they are suffering for the sake of the gospel as if something is wrong. Something is right. And, and Christians who are in other areas of the world is not suffering in an abnormal way. It is our call, even in America, to suffer. Because a mark of a Christian is one who suffers for his father. Those who suffer with Christ will reign with Christ. Suffering is a part. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that discipline, that suffering, it leads to us becoming holy. Right. Hebrews 12, 14 says, and without holiness, no one should see God. Right. The next thing that this text points to is not only our identity, not only discipline or us maturing in this call to be a Christian, 
but it also shows us that we can trust God's provision. As God's children, we can trust his provision. Dr. Moore said that once he took his boys home, he saw them constantly looking back to the orphanage, and they were afraid because they did not know what was coming up. They didn't know the Moors. They didn't know when the next time they were going to eat. So they constantly was looking back. And Dr. Moore said that he told them, I will provide for you. Don't worry. And he set them in their high chairs once they got home. And he said when he fed them their first meals, both of their first instinct was to hide their food. Because they did not know when their next meal was coming. They would eat and they would hide. They would eat and they would hide instinctively because they did not trust him yet as father. And I found out that being a child of God, it means trusting in God's provision. In this text in Galatians, it shows us that we can trust in his provision because God provided for us our deepest need. Our deepest need was not physical food. Our deepest need was not physical water. Our deepest need was spiritual food, which is Christ, the bread of life which is Christ, the water of the word. And the Bible says that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son made of a woman, made under the law to redeem them who was under the law. In the fullness of time, God sent forth Christ. In the fullness of time, God won our hearts over to Christ. In the fullness of time, God supplied our deepest spiritual need. And if he will supply our deepest spiritual need, we must trust him to supply our physical need. Are we hiding things from God because we don't trust him with it? Are we constantly worrying ourselves to death when we get our checks and and not tithing and giving to the Lord because we don't trust that he will provide? Are we working ourselves to death and not having faith that that God can open up doors? Are we trying to figure out everything that we can figure out meticulously because we don't trust that God is providing our steps? Are we laying out before the Lord and crying, as the text says, a cry of sonship, Abba, Father? Or are we saying, I can figure it out? One of the benefits of being a child of God is that we don't have to figure it out ourselves. One of the benefits of being a child of God is knowing that God is our loving father and he cares more about our situation than we care. One of the benefits about having God as our father is knowing that he will supply our every need according to his riches and glory, that we can trust him. Trust is faith in the present tense. Do you have faith in the present? your home being wrecked by bills, by finances, by lack of trust in God? Or are we seeing God as our Father? Are we like Israel in the wilderness, looking back to the orphanage, looking back to Egypt, saying if I still was in Egypt, if I still was on that corner selling drugs, if I still was doing something illegal, if I still wasn't turning in my tax forms and skimming off the top, then I would be okay. Or am I trusting God for his provision? And I believe that we can trust God for his provision. 
Sometimes God does allow us to go through seasons of hunger, but it's not to break us, it's to make us. It's to make us content. It's to make us appreciate what we do have. It's to allow us to have an opportunity to know that Christ is our all in all, even when the money's low and the gas, I'm barely getting back from work, is letting me trust in the Lord. Why that gas tank is low, it's teaching me to pray because I know that that gas tank should have been empty a long time ago, but God made a way. Sometimes God allows us to be hungry in order that when he feeds us, we can learn a lesson. Paul said, now, there is great gain in godliness with contentment, for we brought nothing into this world, and we cannot take anything out of this world. But if we have food and clothing and these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into a temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into the ruin and destruction. God gives us what he knows we can handle. And the reason why we have not received some of the things that we have prayed for is because God knows if he gave it to us, we would reject him. So the proverb said, Lord, he said, don't give me great wealth. At least I attain great wealth and I turn from you. Then he said, but Lord, don't make me poor. Least I'm poor and I'm tempted to rob others. He says, Lord, give me what I need. And may that be our prayer, Lord, give us what we need. If I I don't have the car that I desire, I'm going to just continue to serve you and obey you and fellowship with your people knowing that you have given me the car that I can handle right now. I can't handle a BMW 745 without thinking prideful and leaning back and looking at somebody like, yeah, what's up? He gives us what we need. How high can God take you before he loses you? We see one float at a time, but God, he's the blimp of this parade that's called life, and he sees the beginning of the parade all the way to the end of the parade. We see a bill. God sees the provision. We see lack. God sees wealth. We see poverty. God sees a time in which poverty will cease. That's the last point. Give me three minutes. Can I have three minutes, brother? Can I have three minutes, brother? Give me six minutes, and we'll close. The last thing we see in this text, as being children of God, not only do we have an identity, right? Not only does God discipline us or allow us to join a mature faith, and put away with elementary principles. Not only does he provide for us, but he gives us an inheritance. He gives us an inheritance. Look at verse 29. It says, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Heirs according to promise. Now let's look down a little bit. Let's look at verse 6. And because you are sons... God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts crying, Abba, Father. Now, we think that's just a a cute cry, a cry of endearment. That's not a cute cry. That's a cry of warfare. Christ in Garcinome, he cried, Abba, Father. 
It's a cry of, help me, Father. Daddy, please. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Now, why is Paul using the term son? And he is using the term son specifically. This is not a general use of the word in which we see brothers being used. Or in Greek, I believe it's Adolpha. It's not, that's not brothers, that, which can be applied to brothers and sisters. This is a specific term, sons. And the reason why he is using a specific term, the reason why he's being gender specific, is because these people in Galatia, they understand something when they hear these words. See, the son received the inheritance of the father. The son received the blessing of the father, and in their culture, a son was identically, he was, he was automatically uh, uh, connected to his father. That's why when we read uh, Luke chapter 3 and we see all the genealogies, and even when we read about the, 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 the gospels talking about the disciples, we see that they, their name is always connected to their father. Okay, James and John, the son of Zebedee. All right, And the reason why it's always the connection, the son of, is because sons were always connected to, connected to their father's inheritance. Which means that if your father was a wealthy uh, a farmer, when you say your father's name along with your, along with your name, people know who your father is. And automatically they can kind of tell what type of inheritance you have. And inheritance meant everything for the Jews because whatever your father was, that's more than likely what you were going to grow and be. Because he was the one that was teaching you. He was the one that was training you. He was training you to be a fisherman, James and John. That's why when the gospel, when Christ comes to James and John, they're fishing with their father. Because they're learning the trade of their father, which means that they will inherit his business. Now, for most middle-class Americans... When we hear the word that we are an heir or that we have received an inheritance, it really doesn't mean much to us because we are not trust fund babies. We're not in Malibu. We're not in California. We're not secretly okay if something happens to our parents, which we never knew because we want the home that they have or the money that they have because we don't know what that feels like. Most people, or I don't know what that feels like to know that one day I'm going to inherit a fortune whether it's when I reach a certain age or when my parents pass. But they knew this language. They knew that when Paul was saying that you are heirs of God, that he is saying that we are inheriting a great inheritance. And what better person to be an heir of? What better person to receive an inheritance from? I'd rather receive an inheritance from God than Bill Gates. I'd rather receive an inheritance from God than Donald Trump. I'd rather receive an inheritance from God than Jay-Z. An inheritance from God is a special thing. And the reason that it's special is because the Bible tells us that our inheritance, number one, is an imperishable inheritance. Our inheritance is protected and it is guaranteed by God the Father. 
That's what Peter said. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, that is undefined, that is unfading, that is kept for you in heaven. If Bill Gates is the one who's holding my inheritance, number one, I'm going to live in fear as a son because I don't necessarily know that he's going to let me have that which I should inherit. He's the one who's signing on the paper. He can do something illegal and have my inheritance completely go away. But the inheritance that we have received from God the Father, the Bible says, is imperishable. That's why Jesus said, do not store up for yourselves on this earth things in which wrath and must and rust can corrode. He said, but store up your treasures in heaven. Why? Because if you store up your treasures in heaven, it's going to last. That's what my grandmother used to say. Only what you do for Jesus will last. That mansion that you're working for can be taken away. That car that you're driving next year will be old. Those clothes that impress you five years from now, you will look at it and say, I can't believe I wore FUBU. I can't believe I wore bell, bell pants, bottom pants. I can't believe I had an afro six inches with a jerry curl. That's the fate. But what we receive from God, it will not fade. The Bible says it is being guarded by God in heaven. Those whom the Father has given me, no man can pluck them out of my hands. No man can take away this inheritance. No man can lose it. Not only is this inheritance imperishable, but the Bible says that this inheritance is glorious. This inheritance is glorious. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18 says it is a glorious inheritance in which we have gained. Dr. Moore said that his sons looked at him when they left the orphanage and he told them, don't cry, don't worry. Back home, you have your own room with your names on the wall. Back home, you have a grandmother and a grandfather waiting to meet you. Back home, you have aunties and uncles that's just dying to meet you. Back home, you have air conditioning. You have as much food as you need. Back home, back home where you are going with me, there is safety and security. There is love and hope. But the boys, he said, they kept looking back and began to look as if they were going to cry because they had never seen home. And I found out that that's how we are. That's how I am. Jesus said that I'm leaving and I'm going to prepare a place for you that in my father's house there's many rooms and I'm still caught up on small stuff, still looking at this world saying I want this, I want this, I want this and God is saying that's small stuff. That's darkness. That's stuff that's going to fade. That's stuff that's going to be out of style. What I have prepared for you is a beautiful home, is a beautiful place of safety. It's a beautiful place of hope where the streets are paved with gold, where no tears of sorrow will be shed, where no cancer will prevail, where death is not welcome. What I have prepared for you, he says in Corinthians, he says, eyes have not seen and ears have not heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man. 
what I have prepared for you. It has your name on it. But we settle for this orphanage, for things that do fade, for things that will bring pain, things that do hurt. But even when we get to heaven, our greatest reward will not be stuff. Greatest reward would not be Gucci flip-flops on gold streets. Our greatest reward won't be some great way to travel or some comfortable bed or some great fruit. Revelations 21.7 says that our greatest reward is our heritage and the opportunity to see God call us his son. Our greatest reward is seeing Christ. Our greatest reward is seeing the one who died for us, the one who took nails in his palms and nails in his feet, the one who took a crown of thorns for our behalf, the one who was whooped and slashed, the one who was buried in Joseph's borrowed tomb and who rose on the third day, the one who said, I am coming back again and I will not leave you as orphans. Our greatest hope is to see the one who has eyes like flame of fire, is to see the one who has many crowns on his head, is to see the one who is called faithful and true, is to see the one who is going to ride on a white horse, is to see the one who will yell and say, I told you that I was coming back. I told you that you were my brother. I told you that God was your father. I told you that I would supply all of your needs. Our greatest hope, our greatest heritage is Christ. If heaven has everything that is pleasurable, but not Christ, I don't want to be there. I'd rather be where Christ is and have limited supply than to be where Christ is not and have everything everything. God is a mighty good God. God is a great God. God is the Alpha and the Omega. God is a loving God. God has bestowed amazing grace on us. May we never become accustomed to it. God bless you. We have hope in Christ. On Christ the solid rock I stand on other ground is seeking stand. We have hope in Christ. I build my hope on nothing less than Jesus Christ and righteousness. We have hope in Christ. Like a rose trampled on the ground, he took the fall and thought of us above all. Father, we thank you for adopting us into your family, for your glory. Even though we were orphans, you gave us a new identity. You disciplined us according to your glory and our good. You provide for us even when we are unfaithful to you. And you have promised us an inheritance that will never be taken away. May you give us the strength to present ourselves as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable unto you, which is our reasonable service. Amen. Praise the Lord, everybody. Praise the Lord.